to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, welcome back to Human Factors Cast. This is episode 143 and today is October 22nd, 2019. And you're listening to or maybe even watching Human Factors Cast. Today, I'm your host, Blake Arnstorff, joined by special guest, Spee Spivak. Correct, Spivak. Spivak. But you got the first name right, so that's the most important part. I even had a note in here to check the pronunciation, pronunciation, but I did not even do that. I was just like, should I comment and reply to that and be like, this, you know, enunciate that? But anyway, so Spee is going to be our correspondent at HFES this year. So we wanted to make sure that we had him on the show, get everybody kind of familiar with him because he'll be the one like doing a lot of the interviews at HFES 2019 for us. And so you hear a lot of his voice over the next week. Um, so just to get into it, we do have some great news stories coming up this for this week. We're tackling questions from the community as well and then doing a little bit of a spotlight on HFES, what Spee may be interested in presentation he's doing, as well as some interviews that he'll be having. Um, but news-wise, we're looking at how humans blame either humans or robots in the workplace, uh, what Tesla's biodefense air system can be used for, and how researchers are using AI to actually design materials. Um, but first, a couple of programming notes. This week is going to be an audio-only podcast, although we will definitely have something uploaded to YouTube for the audio-only format. Um, we're still having a few issues trying to get the video production set up in the in my apartment at the moment, uh, but you can look that look for that episode sometime later this week. But we'll definitely have the audio only episode up in your feed later this evening. Um, so, as many of you know, and the big focus of this episode is going to be uh, the HFES annual meeting is coming around the corner. It's actually starting next week on October 28th and runs all the way through November 1st in beautiful Seattle. Um, and thanks again, Speed, for being on the show because we're going to kind of jump in a little bit here and talk a little bit about what you're expecting from HFES. Um, but before we jump into that, can you give people a little bit of a background of like your background in human factors, how you kind of found your way into it, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, so I studied, I'm from Toronto, Canada, originally born and raised. I uh, studied industrial engineering at the University of Toronto, uh, got a bachelor's in that, and decided to take a stream of human factors within that program that they offered. Uh, they have a pretty big program there, I think, as far as undergraduate human factors programs go. And I got my, it caught my eye in a second year class in a cognitive neuroscience class about the brain and psychology. It was something other than formulas and math, so I was like all about it. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I worked up there. I did an internship for 12 months with the Department of National Defense or Defense Research and Development Canada, uh, working in a human systems integration department within their research center. Uh, and I did that for 12 months. And I really got hooked in the human factors field, as well as specifically the military or government industry. Um, and then that kind of continued throughout my senior year. I did um, a thesis, undergraduate thesis project, which I'm actually presenting at HFES, which I'll talk about later in the show. Excellent. Um, and then I was looking for a new job in Pacific Science and Engineering, PSC. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that, Blake. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I have to be quite familiar with PSC. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's great, man. I mean, because that was something I was going to ask you, and you've obviously kind of told me the answer, but something I didn't know about when I was in undergrad until, you know, at the very end when I decided it was time to go to grad school, I had never even heard of human factors. I had no idea really what it was. Like my professor at the time, because you probably don't know this, people, some people that are listening to the show do know this, but for those that don't, I started off in like neuroscience and then animal learning science. 
So that's my that was my focus in psychology and my like uh, the PhD program I could have gone into, like professor that I've been working under for about four years. She was like, you don't really seem like you enjoy this stuff. Why don't you try human factors? Because it had more to do with aviation and like working with like people and machines and stuff like that. So it's cool that you actually did. you. So you did an undergraduate thesis, right? Yeah. That's crazy. I've actually, I haven't heard of that. Is that, what's the process like for putting one of those together? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I take it for granted, I guess, coming from my school, just thinking that it's the norm. But it was, it was basically an optional class in your senior year. There were two mandatory classes and you could take either a one semester or a full year, two semester um, thesis project. And I opted in for that because that meant not going to lectures and doing things on my own time. There you go. And <laughs> so the win-win. And, um, and you're supposed to typically do that with a supervisor from, from, the, from the school, from the University of Toronto. But my, um, when I had worked at DRDC up in the, for the, the Army, my supervisor was Dr. Justin Hollins, and he actually had an adjunct position at U of T. So he was able to supervise me. Yet I was still able to work at my previous place of employment. Oh, and that's that, super cool. Super cool. And I'm really grateful that it turned into like a publication. I got my, my publication out of that. Um, and it was just mostly you're just, I don't know, you, there are certain guidelines you have to comply to and based on, you know, how, what your thesis should look like. But this is very much like supervisor, um, student thing that they agree on. And so he was just like, let's go for a paper. And so it kind of followed that format. And uh, it was really, really neat. And yeah. that's pretty sick, man. Yeah. So to try and do my best filling Nick's shoes, I'll segue into a little bit about HIPS then, because you're actually going to present, is it about your thesis? Yes. Okay. Well, so it's, it's the, so the thesis that I worked on, we presented, we published, it got published in the Journal of Human Factors this past August. Nice. But then after that thesis, we did a follow-up study. And so that was the second experiment, basically, that pretty much replicated the first experiment, but changed one dependent variable. And I present, I, pub, I um, submitted that to the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting, HFES rather. Um, and so I'm presenting on that work, but it builds on the work that I did for my thesis. So Sweet. I'll be talking about both. So yeah. what was the what was the work on, or maybe what was the name of the paper? Either sure. way. Uh, Sounds very generic off the top, but cognitive load and situation awareness for soldiers using a detection response task. Nice. Okay. Um, and so the motivation came from the Canadian Army identifying these quote unquote hard problems that included cognitive overload and commander situation awareness. And they were acquiring and, de and deploying these battle management systems, and kind of like iPhones in a way, and deploying them to the dismounted soldier to be able to use for geospatial information, as well as communicate via radio and text. Oh, wow. And so the introduction of text communication in the army was they wanted to explore that and see if that was going to impose cognitive load on soldiers and, you know, reduce their situation awareness. Um, and so we conducted a study that effectively compared, um, we got, we, we recruited soldiers as participants and they played the role of a, played the role of a platoon commander that were trying to build a tactical scenario from a series of messages that they were getting from subordinates. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and so th that served as our measure of SA, their ability to comprehend the information that they were getting, process that, and then report that high to a higher up. And so we had them fill out some sort of situation report. Um, and we, we varied the modality of information presentation to be either radio, like they listen through uh, headphones, or on text and through a cell phone. And 
We also vary the message presentation rate to be either fast or slow, so we can also manipulate workload. Sure. And so what did you guys, did you guys find that one modality was preferred to another or resulted in better situation awareness? Yeah. So great question, Blake. <laughs> um, so we, we found that auditory or radio format led to better performance, both better essay and reduced cognitive load. Interesting. But it was kind of loaded, the result, or we thought so, because our measure of cognitive load was a DRT, detection response task. This is a tool that's been extensively used in driver distraction studies as a way of measuring cognitive load. It's a secondary task. It, um, you basically, it was designed by Strayer uh, and company at Salt Lake City. And it's essentially, you, you strap this device on your head and there's a, 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 a light going off, a signal going off in your periphery every three to five seconds that you have to um, respond to and oh, depress. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard of that or some, something similar. Well, I know like a simulation we got late in my grad school career, like we got a like actual car simulation where you would have this task going on. And I always found it like really, really distracting like, <laughs> trying to run participants through it or running it through myself when we were testing experiments. So I can't only imagine like it, in trying to come up with, you know, situation awareness of a tactical plan through either like text or voice, that's probably pretty intense, like having to do that secondary task. But you were saying that you felt like the results were a bit loaded based on the fact that it was the secondary task. What was what was really going on there? So so what we think was that because the modality of the secondary task, the DRT, was visual, it was a visual light they had to respond to. So perhaps that there was interference in those visual conditions where they had to read messages on a text. So kind of in line with Wiccan's multiple resource theory, saying that to the extent that two tasks share the same dimension on a perceptual modality, mm -hmm. um, you will, to the extent that they're using the same modality, you will perform not as, I, not as good. Yeah, but you're like, yeah, but poor performance because you're almost having to split attention, or at least that's how yes. I remember like his kind of theories or what he would put forward. Yeah, so he, he has these uh, ideas of like resource pools. And so you have like a visual resource pool, you have an auditory resource pool. Exactly. And so, you know, it makes, if, if, if one thinks about it, if you're just have headphones on, you're listening to messages, you can look anywhere and you can still, it's, you know, uni, unidimensional in that sense. Um, omnidimensional? Omnidirectional. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the words. One of these things. One of these things. Um, so we thought that, that that interference might have led us to the results we found, which was that auditory information presentation led to better essay and reduced cognitive load. Gotcha. So that was the first paper. And then the second paper, or the second experiment we did was we replicated the exact study that we did first, but we switched out the visual DRT with an auditory DRT. Interesting. So yeah. what did anything change? So the results, so, so it flipped for cognitive load, meaning when we use an auditory detection response task, participants performed better when they were doing the visual case because they weren't competing for the same resources. Gotcha. But we found, we still found better situation awareness in the auditory case. So across both studies, regardless of the DRT we used, there was better situation awareness for the auditory case. Gotcha. So our, our speculation is that this is due to the obligatory access that speech, spoken information has to the working memory, specifically the phonological loop. You don't have to try to hear something and process that. But whereas if you're reading something, we do this sub-vocalization sub in, our, in our brains and we sort of like, are, we're sort of speaking it to ourselves when we're reading. Yeah, that's um, basically what you're, like technically what your mind might be doing at that point, right? Right. Because you're just reading it, but you're also like sub-internalizing 
internalizing it so that you can communicate it out. Yeah. There's like a bunch of steps going on from like a visual, even like the visual search portion of it too. Yeah, completely. And, and so that's, uh, we, um, so we thought that might have been one of the explanations. And so since, because you have this obligatory access, your, your situation awareness is, is heightened in that case because you're, it's easy access to the, to the, um, to the working memory. Yeah. And in that case, when, when, because it has that obligatory access, participants focus more on the primary task of processing information and ignore the DRT less. So therefore, their cognitive load was, was degraded. They had worse cognitive load, but they had better SA. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a way better explanation than what I was thinking in my head, because I was going to ask you, based off the first study, do you think it had anything to do with the fact that they may be used to using radio comms all the time? That, I don't know if you can see, I don't think we're not doing video this week, but I just gave Blake a uh, <laughs> nice emoji hand, hand thing. But yeah, it was, uh, that was our speculation. We had two arguments. One was the modality interference, but the second one was that, hey, we got those results because these guys had on average 17 years of service and they're just used to talking over radio. Gotcha. So and that then, was the other thing I was going to point out. I was like, I wonder if that changes depending on like if you're fresh into the army mm. versus like if you've been in the army for a while and you're maybe a little bit more used to your phone and like dealing with that. I don't know how, what impact like cell phones or iPhones, I guess, have had, had on like our ability to search through information and quickly pick it up. Because I would assume that if you're maybe a bit younger, you've been exposed to a phone for a long, long time, you might be better off like picking up that information quickly and regurgitating it than maybe even through like an auditory means where technically it's got a better and shorter path to get to your brain and get to, and for you to internalize it and then give it back out. Interesting. But, but who knows? So perhaps like looking at, like you said, fresher or younger because younger demographic and comparing that to the older one and seeing if that changes and if they're just used to that information. But I feel like it, you know, that, that's an interesting speculation. I wonder if the rate at which people can read is still like a limiting factor in that, right? Probably, um, yeah. Especially because now, now a lot of people are writing read. this very shorthand right, version. Right. So like if you're, if it was like a one-to-one -one translation, maybe you'd have a little bit of benefit, but I, but you're probably right. It's, it's more likely the case that people are still like having to be limit or being limited by the, how fast they can read. Right. Crazy. But, but we also, it, there's some, this, the results we got has some sort of flexibility in that. Like you still don't want to be texting someone like RPG incoming BRB, you know, you want to, yeah, you probably want to get on the radio about that and make sure, sure it's known. So it's, um, it's interesting. And we're sort of using that results to, to inform the, uh, the further studies that are done with these devices and they're actually being tested in the field up in Quebec and Canada, but we're using, and so with the results of these studies, we've validated the use of a DRT outside of the driver setting and in a tactical setting, but we've also recommended to the army that, you know, to be aware of the caveat that there might be modality interference between tasks. Yeah. So when we strap, we actually strapped some DRTs on them in the field and we actually used a, a tactile version so that hopefully it doesn't Oh, uh, interesting. It doesn't affect with any other modality. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Yeah. I'm super excited. And it's my first conference attendance. So. Oh, um, ever? Ev ever. Yeah. Sweet. And it's yeah. going to be HFPS. HFPS. Yeah. And you get to present and yeah. interview a bunch of people. Yes. So super awesome. excited about that. Super cool. So, yeah, if you want to check out Sfi's talk, do you know what day it is or anything like that? Yes. So it's uh, Tuesday um, in the Cognitive Engineering and Decision Making Group. Sweet. At 2 p.m. Nice. All right. You yeah. can check out Sfi at 2 p.m. on Tuesday in Seattle if you happen to be there. Um, so like we said in the beginning, we're going to actually have Sfi out there at HFES doing some interviews. But I actually want to talk to you like in terms of HFES, since this is your first conference, like do you have expectations? Are there specific presentations or sessions you're excited for? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm open to this whole and excited for this whole new opportunity and experience that I've never had before. I mean, like learning about human factors and being in the field and knowing how like small and niche it is. I mean, I'm sure HFES has a large attendance, but it's just really exciting to be in a place where there's everyone is in the same field as you. And even the company we're at, like there's only there's 50 or so people, but it's exciting because everyone can talk the talk of human factors, whereas typically, you know, you might just be a human factors person or a human factors team among a larger group. So I'm just excited to be able to like network and meet with different people from across the world about the work they're doing. Um, I'm also doing the Monday, they have a bunch of workshops there. So I'm actually doing a workshop on questionnaire design. Nice. Um, Yeah, really excited about that. We use questionnaires all the time as part of human factors to gather information about, uh, you know, before an experiment, after an experiment, or during testing and assessment. And so, you know, it's typical, you know, it's easy, I guess, to get to reuse the same one or to not really think about it, um, ask generic questions. But I'm hoping that this workshop will kind of give me a new set of tools to think about creating questionnaires and making them most effective for the right audience and the right purpose and all that. Nice. Yeah. And um, just trying to jump through as many different technical groups as I can, like, occupational ergonomics and human robot teaming and you know oh human all, robot teaming has to be kind of an insane one to go to oh i'm sure it is yeah. and we're talking about that later today right the, yeah uh, the yeah, robot, the robot bit. that or how people blame robots or blame people depending on the context yeah uh, sweet so sweet. in terms of interviews we you've kind of narrowed down a, a, a list of people you're actually going to talk to so right now who do we have or what can we look forward to hearing all right we've got chris wickens we're interviewing Oh man! Yeah, you got to feel really cool about that. I, I'm I'm geeking out hard. I'm kind of I'm really <laughs> nervous actually. I'm emailing I'm emailing all these uh all of them to correspond, and I'm just like like shaking at the keyboard. Like what do I say? like reading my email like eight times before it goes out? That was how I felt when we interviewed Mike Ainsley last year. And I feel like if I go back to that the YouTube video of that I probably don't say very much because <laughs> she was like like her work was so built up in my Human Factors program because we focused so much on like situation awareness and like her technique of measuring it versus you know one of the other techniques and like which one came out better in the lab and so i feel like i knew so much more about her and her work that it was it was just too much of a nerding out moment for me to be really useful in like an interview session <laughs> um, but <laughs> chris wickens that's so cool yeah so chris wickens justin hollands um so he was my supervisor as well uh oh, wow. and he's going to be in attendance and actually he hasn't confirmed yet but I, I have them as confirmed because I know he'll say yes. <laughs> there you go. Nice. <laughs> um, and both of them are just been like, they've authored like intro to human factors textbooks. I mean, Justin is co-author on uh, engineering psychology and human performance. I think that's the name of the textbook. Um, and they're just super, uh, what's, what's the word, I guess, Bob? Prol- prolific, if you will. Oh, definitely yeah. prolific yeah. In, the yeah. human, in the human factors, factors yeah. field, for sure. And another powerhouse I got is John Lee. Um, oh wow john d lee from university of wisconsin madison very cool so and then along that theme i've also got Anne besance from the university of buffalo um i want to speak to her as well because well this is biased but she's in the industrial and systems engineering program there and i studied that so kind of get to like i like to get an engineering perspective to human factors i find that often at least our company a lot of the human factors folks are Psychology, but yourself, you said it was yeah. neuroscience and animal. Yeah, very behavior, focused right? on psychology. Psychology. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, human factors is so neat because it, it's an intersection of all these different disciplines. So to get to hear different perspectives is really neat. Um, and she's done a lot of work on trust as well, just just like John Lee. So, uh, and then finally, we've got Amy Pritchett. Um, she's from Penn State uh, in the aerospace program there. 
Um, and she's just done a lot of work in the aviation industry about the role of cockpit alerting systems, air traffic complexity. Um, and so just looking forward to talking to all these various people. And I'm so like, they were all so open and receptive to this whole thing. And I'm, I just, not that I'm surprised, but I was, you know, I don't know. I was definitely surprised last year, like getting some of the bigger names that we did, like anybody to sit down and just kind of like talk to us. I was like, holy cow, this is insane. And Nick was telling me that they were all like super excited about it. And like, I've watched, you know, from watching them also, they seem like they're engaged and they're just, they were about it. I guess they, they love talking about it. And I feel like they really appreciate what you guys are doing here at the human factors cast of just making human factors fun and accessible and, you know. Yeah. I mean, that was always Nick's vision, right? Is he just wanted to make like a show that was actually enjoyable to listen to about human factors. Cause it's just like, it's something that he was really interested in and like, it's I was really lucky to be a part of it when it started for sure. And we we've evolved so much, but it's it's a lot of fun to be able to do this stuff at conferences because it's different from the normal show. It's actually talking to people about their job or about their research. And I feel like you learn so much more like because I, I feel like you can read a lot of papers about somebody's work and really understand maybe their thought process or what, what their point of view on a subject, be it like situation awareness or attention. But like talking to them and listen to their like personal anecdotes about it and how they got to where they are is way more interesting to me um, than only being able to read the papers. Because, I mean, we apply a lot of the science that we read about and that kind of stuff. But it's kind of cool to see the people behind it. Yeah. Kind of gives you a perspective on like, well, I mean, yeah, like you said, it kind of just gives you an insight as to what their background is and how they got to where they're going and kind of maybe leaves you with some inspiration of coming back to work and you know, trying to get to their level as <laughs> yeah, that was that's always been the best part about going to conferences is like it, and it I think it falls in such a good time because it's like right before the holidays or HFES anyway. It's typically right before the holidays at the end of October, where it's like you're almost getting ready to start a new year. So that getting and meeting with new people, learning from even different domains, like what people are doing in medical or what people are doing in robotics from a human factors perspective. And then bringing it back and feeling energized to come back to work and then like try and put stuff together for the next year. I think it's just a really good opportunity, especially for you, since this is like your first conference. Uh, It seems like there's a lot of cool things that are already going on, because I remember last year when we were talking to a couple of the organizers, they had mentioned that they were going to be moving in to try to do a little bit more augmented reality and VR and robotics and stuff like that. So it seems like a really great one to go to. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, surround the corner from the holiday season. I'm Still on the fence if I should pack my Deadpool onesie or not for Halloween. Oh, there you over, go. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know if people are going to be dressing up there. I doubt it. Um, Never really know. Because there, there, there is definitely like an older crowd, but there's always people that are kind of, I don't know, younger age-wise. But yeah. I don't remember if that happened last year. I feel like I, that it's was... probably over the same weekend, or same week usually, right? it was, yeah. Uh, but I don't remember because I remember being in Philly and going out with a bunch of friends on, I think, Halloween. Or maybe not, but anyway. But you were dressed up regardless. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. Um, okay, so anything else you want to talk about about HFES or what's upcoming? Um, no, just, uh, just again, really excited to be able to go out there and meet with people. Interviewing, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I mean, I know it seems like you, I'm doing a favor for you guys, but I think this is like huge for me and I'm geeking out. And so I'm really excited about the opportunity and just also Seattle. Like, I mean, Seattle super is cool. So cool. Is it? Yeah. Oh man. I like went there a couple of months ago and like, I'd never been like just the art scene's really cool. The downtown scene is a lot of fun. Uh, it's probably gonna be an awesome place for a conference for sure. Yeah. Cause everything, everything is pretty much like a walking distance from each other anyway. Yeah. It's at the Sheridan, which is like smack downtown, which you're saying is like where everything's at. And yeah. 
some cool bars. And my buddy, I'm actually going a weekend before. My buddy and I were going down to Portland. So really excited for that too. Nice. I haven't been there either. And so going to get some IPAs up in there. Sweet. Just well, Portland's supposed to be fun too. That's another place I haven't been. You haven't been? been? No. no. All yeah. right. Well, cool. So uh, just pulling back something you said a second ago, I mean, you, me and Nick are so thankful that you were able to do this and you wanted to because we both felt bummed out. Well, Nick, not so much because, I mean, he just became a dad. Everything is really <laughs> good for him right now. Um, but like me not being able to go either to the conference, we were like, oh man, we're kind of letting HFES down or like Kermit down. He's helped us so much. So it was great that we had somebody else that could like step in and help us out. So that's, I'm really stoked for you to go. Thanks. Um, all right. So we've, we've got a lot going on a, lot, a fair amount about HFES. So look for next week. I'll be dropping, um, interviews as I get them from SVI. I'll just have to make a couple quick edits and I'll drop them probably every evening or whenever the interviews actually are a few hours later. Um, so look out for those. You'll they'll hit your feed as I get them and get them up. Um, but otherwise, let's hop into some Human Factors news. Woo. All right. So this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. It could be anything from medical, robotics, neuroscience, AI, as always. You name it, as long as it relates to the field of Human Factors. All right. So up first, so we're talking about humans versus robots. Who's going to get the blame for workplace incidents? So, so a recent study from North Carolina State University finds that people are likely to blame robots for workplace accidents, but only if they believe the robots are actually autonomous. So robots are an increasingly common feature in the workplace, and it's important for us as humans to understand how people view robots in the workplace context, including how people view robots when accidents occur. Uh, so to explore this issue, some researchers from North Carolina State uh, had a 164-person study where they chose several workplace scenarios in which an accident occurred involving both a human and a robot. And when when the human was operating the robot, study participants usually blamed the human for the, for an accident. And when told the robot was autonomous and that the human was the only one only monitoring it, study participants usually blamed the robot. Hmm. So this finding seems somewhat intuitive, but it is addressing a fundamental issue. So when do we transfer the responsibility of an error from a human to a robot? So I don't know how much you've thought about this, Svee, but it, the, I think they're right. Like the finding does sound a little bit intuitive, right? Like you're assuming that if somebody's just in like out of the loop monitoring a robot doing a task, that if a, if a mistake or an accident happens, you're going to blame the robot. And the other way, if a human is in full control of a robot. But from your perspective, I mean, what do you think about this kind of concept? Uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's kind of intuitive. It, I mean, it just it seems like it has a really strong parallel to human humans and human human interaction or human human teams where whoever's responsible or whoever whoever's responsible gets the blame. Um, I mean, again, as a human factors person, I guess we're trained to think that it's never the human's fault. Uh, I mean, there's negligence, right? Sure. Uh, I'm just listening to this podcast my friend is doing on like. Uh, it's like a true crime podcast, but it's all about deaths at Disneyland. Um, what? Sorry, this is a segue, but I know, but... Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, I talk about, like, negligence, really, you know, and, like, you were just there, right? Yeah. Disneyland. And so, uh, I'm sure some rides are just, like, you're locked in, you're safe, but people can do dumb stuff, and so... Sure, I mean, you, you can... It's, it is kind of funny, right? Because more times than not on the show, we've, like, looked at, you know, problems in the news from a... that are, like, typically blamed on, you know... A human, whatever it may be. The the Hawaiian missile crisis thing is kind of a perfect example of that, where it's like operators, it's the operator's fault. Where technically, 
if you really look at how the system's designed and like some of the fail safes that just weren't there, you could also say that, yes, there was human error and there was a large potential for it, but that could have been fostered by the way the system was put together, designed, that kind of stuff. And so in a, in a case like this, it's a little bit different, right? Because you're actually, now it's kind of distinct on who's in control of the robot and who's not, or who's monitoring versus like having full control. But the, so although the finding is pretty intuitive, I think the question they ask at the end is what I find most interesting about like, when do we actually say that, okay, an error is no longer in a human's domain and now it's a robot's problem? Because I think that that question, this is, I'm going to bastardize this a little bit, but I think that question really plays into something we've dealt with on the show for at least the past year. And that's in, in the world of autonomous vehicles, when are we going to pass the you know, it's the human's fault that an accident happened versus it's the automation's fault that a, that the car got into an accident. Um, and I think that's like a line that we still haven't really found a good place to draw. And I think studies like this, although it's it's definitely advocating for, again, if you put a human in a monitoring position, much like in an autonomous car, you kind of have to rely on the robot or the autonomous system to be more in control or make the right decisions. But how do you really draw that line? Um, I wonder if it's, um, I mean, it's probably not as easy. It's probably not like a quantifiable thing as much as, you know, a case-by-case basis. But uh, who was it that, it's not John Sanders, that has like a, the rule, the 10 like levels of automation? Um, oh, that's so, a great question. I don't know off the top of my head who has it, but I know the levels of automation. So levels of automation, right? And yeah. so, so perhaps you could, um, yeah, so perhaps you could like use that scale. Um, I believe so, trying to, recall what those levels were but it basically starts off with you know human doing everything fully and then like human doing everything but then robot executing and it kind of works its way up or down this ladder until you get on the one end is a human is completely autonomous and doing everything and the other end is automation or robot doing everything and so perhaps you can draw a line along that scale and say you know based on this true and tried ladder or scheme schema you could sort of say like okay if it's past level seven or past level eight or if you're in this like region or you know maybe then it's it's the robot's fault or maybe then it's the human's fault and i mean i don't know what fault's really getting at here i guess but maybe it's just and it's perception of i mean yeah see that's more of what it seems like it's a perception thing it's like i don't know what the accidents were because i said they use a fair or varied workplace scenario so maybe if it if you're interacting with a robot maybe it knocks something over or something gets you know broken in the process and whether you blame it on a human or not is is based off of the level of control they have Mm -hmm. because this when I first read the headline of the study, I was wondering if it was not so much like levels of control that the human had over the robot, if they were interacting with them in a similar space, right? Like you do on kind of, it's kind of the only example I can think of, like a, a car manufacturer's floor where you do have robots doing a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the work, but you also have humans checking on them or at least walking the floor. Um, so you have to kind of watch out for that kind of stuff. Um but I mean, ultimately, it. I think you're right. You can't draw a quantifiable line, and it probably will become a case-by-case basis. But how we kind of make that decision on where the fault lies is going to, I think it's going to be a, like a big impact for companies like Tesla, which we'll talk about uh, in one of these stories, or anybody that's like dealing with creating autonomous anything, whether it's like trucks or cars for people to actually ride in, whatever it may be. Um, so they, I'm going to end this story with a couple other questions they actually had, and I wanted to get your opinion on these two. 
So this is kind of thinking from the employer's perspective. So would you want to buy robots that may be more efficient but can be blamed for errors so they have that built in like it's the robot's fault. It's going to suffer the blame no matter the kind of whatever's happened, uh, which is going to make it more difficult for human employees to be accountable for any kind of error that happens. So and again, thinking of this in the lens of you do have humans that are monitoring to some level of control. Um, or do you think employers would want to stick to robots that are viewed solely as tools to be controlled by humans? That's a tough question. That's an interesting one as well. Uh, it has a lot of implications, I guess, for, yeah, I mean, my, my gut instinct, um, my capitalist American instinct is just that <laughs> employers want the most efficient thing ever. And they, whatever is going to cost, cost the least and do the job the most, put that into, uh, put that into commission. Um, and I think that, I mean, I don't know, is it, is it the shift then? That, because forever humans have been held accountable for things before technology has advanced as progressively uh, as it has, you know, in the last hundred years or so. But, you know, I wonder if it's something like, like employers or humans just want to shift that responsibility and throw it on them and throw it on the robots and make them responsible. Um, but, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, know, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's a weird one, right? Because yeah. I, I kind of tend to agree with you. I think an employer is going to want whatever's most efficient. and But with the caveat that I think in that case, and this is me being a little bit cynical, but I think in that case of, some, of buying a robot that they can blame stuff on is kind of a double-edged sword, right? It's It could lead to, if the robot is truly as efficient as it's said to be, could lead to a massive reduction in human jobs or need for people to be, you know, monitoring whatever systems or robots in general. Because if they're that good, maybe you don't need humans to be doing some of the jobs. Um, at the same time, if you're able to, like, kind of put a lot of blame in a company on a specific thing and it's not a human, you don't have to pay a workers' comp if it breaks or whatever it may be, you may open up, like, robotics companies for a lot of liability for oh. whatever may be going on. Now, I doubt that that's probably the case probably once you buy it or or you know i'm assuming a lot of companies are a lot smarter than i am but that's just where my head goes is like well if you're blaming something are you putting liability on the company or, you, or is it on you because you bought the robot because kind of the buck ends there so i don't really know um but i think that yeah i, th I think that i mean at least for the near future there's there's going to be some form of control i think that humans still have over robots and i mean you have companies like tesla which are almost fully autonomous yeah right? but um, I think for the most part, it's, it's a culture thing as well, right? Like a lot of the people who are in the workforce, you know, it's made up of older folks and younger folks. And those younger folks are, you know, um, they're, uh, they're moving up, they're moving up the ladders and the older folks are going, but those older folks still want to see humans in charge and still want to see humans supervising and being in control of the automation. And I think trust is a huge thing also that we still haven't been able to fully place in robots. Um, yeah, I think that's something that we're going to continue to struggle with until we like keep allowing more autonomous things to be, you know, put in, put in the world, like whether it's cars or robots in a factory, whatever it may be. I think that's just going to have to grow over time. Yeah, we need to get Isaac Asimov on this podcast and raise him from his... Uh, there we go. Yeah, like, <laughs> talk about the laws of robotics and how that uh, right? <laughs> relates here. That would be amazing. Plenty who's still around. All right. So up next, we've got a little bit about Tesla and its bioweapon defense air system. So Tesla's air filtration system with bioweapon defense mode is providing proving useful for owners affected by the current wildfires in California. 
So with the Model X Tesla, it's put a lot of effort in developing a more powerful air filtering system in order to not only contribute to the reduction of local pollution with electric vehicles, but also reduce the direct impact of air pollution on occupants in its vehicles. So when working at full capacity, which Tesla so lovingly calls bioweapon defense mode, the filtration system is 100 times more effective than a premium automotive filter is, as it removes about 90, 99.97% How would you measure that? Yeah. of fine particle matter and gaseous pollutants, as well as bacteria, viruses, pollen, and mold. Again, that the measurement of that is hilarious. Seems like they should go into the HVAC system here with all this. Yeah, I think they make a joke about that somewhere in the actual article that like we're maybe we'll coin this in an HVAC system or that's where they got the original idea from one of the guys at Google. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, so I don't know. This this is kind of a goofy one to me because I, so I heard about this on a silly podcast from Joe Rogan with Brian Redband, and I didn't know that it was real. I thought they were goofing around talking about this bioweapon defense mode in a Tesla. And didn't see see the story appear in Slack. I was like, oh, wait, this is a real thing that is called bioweapon defense mode. And it's actually a really powerful air filtration system. So is it like uh, just like a, a modular component that you add to Tesla or our new Teslas come with it? And like, is it a mode like the way we have a like sport mode in our car? They're just like bioweapon defense mode. Yeah. So mode? as far as I understand, it's a button you press. OK. Uh, so it and it turns on bioweapon defense mode, which is a.k.a. like really good air filtration system that basically airlocks your car to some degree and filters out anything that's coming in. Um, supposedly just for like a pollution aspect. But I, I think it's always kind of funny to see the. So what, hold on, I'll back up a second. So the reason I even put this in here is one, because it's funny, but two, I wanted to talk a little bit about when you name stuff like bioweapon defense mode inside of a car, you got to understand what kind of implications that's going to have for a user who's, you know, driving your car. Has Tesla been doing some kind of something for the government that it knows about that like it had, it decided it needs to start preparing cars for bioweapon defense. Is that why it's in here? Um, it's just kind of a strange name to throw on at something, whether it's supposed to be tongue in cheek or not. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that it's such a powerful air filtration system that it, it can help people in, it, or it's at least proved useful while people are driving around in these wildfires, that's pretty amazing itself. So there is some application to it. But I just wanted to get kind of your perspective yeah. on like, what you what would you think if you turned on your car and you saw like, oh, there's the option for bioweapon defense mode? Well, actually, I found out also in the in, you mentioned Joe Rogan and Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan a couple months back or yeah. months back. That was uh, well, after watching that, I'm like, all right, he he would call it a bioweapon defense mode. But um, after watching that, finding out that the Tesla's dense, um, I don't know what that actually looks like or takes form of. Wait, what is this? So Elon Musk was saying, most people who own a Tesla don't know this. So any listeners out there, if you own a Tesla, look into this if you don't know it already. But it, it apparently, you can put it in a mode where it dances. And I don't know, I think maybe it's like flashing lights and it does like, wheel, uh, you know, uh, donuts, donuts or something like that. I really don't know. I'm super way. curious now also. But. That's so wild. So I've seen that, seen... Yeah, this. Uh, so not only does it have bioweapon defense mode, ladies and gents, it has a way to dance yeah, as well. But seeing, but seeing that, I would think that I don't know when I would press that. I, I would probably. I mean, I don't know what that button design looks like, but like I'm imagining a hazardous like icon and like a red button. Like it, it comes off of the name of something that you you would want like defensively and only in certain situations. Um, but 
I wouldn't think that that would work for that like, you'd want that on when you're driving through California on a regular day. Yeah. Um, so it literally looks like the biohazard symbol. Oh, it does. So like the circle with like the half circles around it. That always looks kind of scary to me. It reminds me of like 28 Days Later, one of these old zombie horror movies. Oh, yeah. I think that was the original zombie zombie movie. It might have been. Yeah. 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 Uh, but anyway, so it's just kind of a strange system, but I think it's a it's a cool application of it to be used to actually be useful outside of something like bioweapon defense. Um, but it's it's one of those things, too, where I would hope that other car manufacturers are kind of taking notice of something like this and not for like the, the bioweapon defense aspect of it. But the fact that like we we consistently hear in the news or at least I do like either through Twitter or whatever, like the concerns about the environment and a lot of that has to do with how we use cars especially out here in california um so anything like like this like beyond just being an electric car but something that's kind of looking to you know improve the effect that even electric cars have on the environment is pretty great and it's kind of an amazing feat of engineering that it's able to handle pulling out this much stuff out of the air and filtering it out from just inside your car so I feel like the application of this system, what, how hard it would be, I don't know, but like putting it in ventilation systems at schools or something like that, I feel like there's a lot more that could be done with it outside of just, you know, your car. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't do the trick for me. Like, I, I need that extra 0.03% uh, yeah. filtration. You know, I don't know if I'd, I'd buy into that otherwise. I get but, you. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but Blake, what did you think? Like, or in terms of bioweapon defense mode, the name of it, I mean, this article and what you've talked about is it's proving useful for the wildfires in California and viruses, pollutants, bacteria. Was it, do you know if it was designed for like impending bioweapon warfare? So or? that's something I really don't know. Okay. I th part of me, because I've definitely seen the episode, not the full episode, obviously, because I didn't know about the dancing Tesla, yeah. but I've seen the episode with Elon on Joe Rogan. And so I, I feel kind of like what, what you mentioned earlier. Feel like that he would just name something that just to name it that because that's like kind of his personality a little bit. Um, but I, at the same time, I don't really know because he's an interesting character to me because of his take on. Well, of course, his his like impact on technology is kind of insane to me, and it's it's just something to be like in awe of from my my perspective. But his take on like AI, like he takes a very kind of afraid stance on it. And so even like some of his companies like Neuralink, I think it's Neuralink, I might be getting that wrong, but whatever company that he owns that's working on building a BCI to kind of combat and get you, you as a human prepared and able to intake as much information as AI could, it's, it's kind of like, well, I don't, it makes me think, did he put this in there because he's afraid of something, whatever it may be. Um, so I don't know, it, it was just kind of one of those things that it, it seems funny on the surface, but also, too, there's a massive amount of engineering that's gone into this system. So was there some kind of thought process behind it? Does right. he have some kind of conspiracy theory that motivated some of it or whatever it may be? Uh, so that was kind of my take on it. It was like at first just funny Elon. But the second thought, like there's way too much engineering put into it for it just to be, you know, a goof. Maybe he's a maybe he's a lizard person. He might be. And trying to take all the, the tunnels under the right? Railway, man. Right? Why? From the lizards, man. They go underground. Yeah, that's but, what it is. But just uh, one last thing I was thinking also was, I mean, obviously, this is great for the just for the sake of invention and for the sake of just purifying the air and, like you said, reducing your carbon carbon put, footprint and all that. Um, I wonder if they were like 
I wonder if something specific motivated this, like if there were studies done of people getting pneumonia or other sorts of sicknesses or illnesses through the California wildfires coming into their car, uh, or if it was just like, you know, for the sake of just continually progressing and getting better and better. So I don't know. Um, That's a really good point. Cause I, I, I could see it being fueled by, you know, a neat, actual need out in the world. Right. So it, could, it very well could be. Maybe one day we'll have Elon on here and he can actually Ooh. tell us, right? Next year, HFES. All right. All right. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be back to break down more of the news stories right after this. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, thanks to everybody for sticking around. We just wanted to say a quick thanks to our friends at Electric, uh, the Tech Wire, and final story is from physics.org. Um, if you want to follow along, you can always follow us on social media. We post these as soon as we find them, or join us on our Human Factors Cast Slack for all the links to the original articles. All right, since we're doing a little bit of a shorter show today, we've got one more story left before we jump into some Reddit questions. Uh, so let's let's kick this one off with some AI. So researchers have developed a new super compressible but strong material without conducting any experimental tests at all, using only artificial intelligence to gather the idea. So the idea came from a researcher that noticed a satellite structure that could open long solar sails from a very small package, and researchers wondered if it would be possible to design a very compressible yet strong material that can be compressed into a small fraction of its volume. So if this was possible, everyday objects like bicycles, dinner tables, umbrellas could be folded into your pocket. And all of this kind of came through using machine learning, and researchers followed a very computational data-driven approach for exploring new metamaterial concepts and adopting it into different target properties, choice of base minerals, length scales, and different manufacturing processes. So guided by machine learning, the researchers were able to fabricate two designs at different Link scales that transform brittle polymers into lightweight, recoverable, recoverable, and super compressible metamaterials. Okay, so what in the world does this have to do with with human factors? <laughs> so, from my perspective, I always find it really interesting when we see different applications of AI. And something that Nick and I have really hammered home on this show is the application of AI towards, you know, analyzing data, providing you recommendations, whether it's in the health sector or whether it's like applications to drone structure or whatever it may be. But this is just a really insane use to me that basically from taking a, f- a few variables that you know you want to manipulate, these scientists were able to actually use, build like basically a small computational model to help them determine what a perfect metamaterial might be to create something that actually allows you to, you know, fold up, 
you know, typical things that you couldn't fold up. Like I could fold my bike up and put it in my pocket. Now I think that's a little extreme, yeah, crazy. but, but at the same time, being able to apply just basically a, a an algorithm similar to what's like backing your phone to help you make decisions. And th in this case, it's focused very much on like what material could I use to build this thing that I want. Um, but I don't know. So it, do you, what are your thoughts like on the story or AI in general? I mean, I thought that when I read that also, I was like, that's insane. I mean, I don't know if that's ambitious. It seems ambitious folding everyday objects into your pocket like Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. I, I thought of like also like Iron Man and just sort of these movies, Marvel movies came to mind of the super futuristic like materials that could change and transform. Um, maybe that's how we get there. Maybe it's, yeah, little steps. But AI is, I mean, so, so they're using AI effectively to, it's like, it seems like AI is being used as like a middleman here to rather than doing research and do, checking out which metamaterial is best used for this, they're developing an algorithm which will then find that out. Yeah, that it's might... basically like you're you're right. It is the middleman here. Instead of like having to do a lot of like I guess R and D is the way I would think about it. Of like, okay, well we think these different materials, if they're put together along with a polymer, might work really hmm. well to create a very strong material that's also foldable or can do X, Y, and Z. But in this case, they're taking what they know about existing materials and what their i guess their desired outcomes are so you know features of the stuff that they talk about that are similar to a satellite and how it bends and it's kind of like strength and flexibility and how do we use that to build everyday things and just the the fact that you that we even have that amount amount of data that you could build a machine learning algorithm based around that it's kind of insane to me alone i mean much less like the artificial intelligence aspect of it right um so yeah i mean but you're definitely right AI or ML is really the middleman here, and it kind of is cutting out some of the need to do like really extensive studying or really extensive, you know, research into different materials and stuff like that. Yeah, but I guess uh, your last point is kind of leading me to now think about maybe the application of human factors here. And you started off the conversation with that of what's human factors have to do with this. Um, and I think that, you know, it's great to sort of, I mean, so many researchers spend hundreds of hours doing research and you know you're doing re you're doing hundreds of hours of research to like produce like a couple like lines on a on a paper and like you know sometimes you have to just sift through a lot and trial and error and so to have an, an algorithm that can do that for you is great in terms of time savings um in terms of data sifting um but i think that you also sort of lose well first of all the human touch like thinking about not that that's necessarily the algorithm's responsibility is to think about how that impacts the human but you know maybe that's on um maybe that's on the end user once it's once it's already maybe the once you do that with the result of the uh the algorithm but um it also sort of i think that it can lose the big picture and that humans are typically better with looking at big picture and so it can drill into the data and it can find out what this new metamaterial is but it might not be able to think in a larger scale of how that might apply for that specific object you're trying to fold up or or something so which i think is kind of the beauty still of where ai is at because it, it's like i've really i've tried to spend as much time understanding what artificial intelligence really means what general ai would actually look like but we're still in such a phase where it is a lot of you know data anal data analysis at a very big scale and giving you recommendations based off of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, this to me really rings that we're still in a good place that, it, like you said, it's really cutting down on some of the time. I mean, maybe people are able to make better decisions on what they should be researching or where, where you should focus your time based on being able to upfront, think about a problem space, run you know, your bare, basic ideas and concepts through 
just a ML algorithm and get a sense of, okay, maybe this is where I should go, but you still also have the human touch there. Like you can worry about what the impact of something is or what the application is or implication to other people if you do X, Y, or Z. Uh, so this one is kind of a little bit of a different style of story. It's talking more about just AI in general. That was kind of my goal here. Nice. Um, but anyway, any closing thoughts for this particular one? Uh, just if you can like fold my car up into my pocket, and I can bring that into a mall and have to like find my parking spot again. That would be super, super great. That would be the yeah. way to go. <laughs> that would be so crazy, right? Oh man. All right. So this is now that we're going to swap from- into the next part of the show. So this is where we switch gears and from- get into it. Came from Reddit. This is part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics that the community is talking about. Uh, speed. So we have about time to do just about just one of these so i'm going to pick the one that i specifically grabbed for you um all right so this is from neurotic buddha uh with the title line looking for a mentor in toronto so hi everyone as i continue to grow in my career as a product slash ux designer in toronto i am seeking out someone with experience in the field that could act as a mentor of sorts so as the field is rapidly evolving and growing and there is such an overwhelming amount of content out there it would be great to be able to meet someone uh, on a semi-regular basis to discuss the industry get critiqued on work etc so all right i'm just going to kind of throw this one to you svi only because i i have suggestions but they may not be be as relevant as what you may be able to offer since you spent a little bit of time in toronto yeah uh i mean definitely Curious to hear your suggestions afterwards, uh, as you are the UX master here. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, as far as I know, I mean, again, my exposure to UX was mostly through school, um, and I only discovered it through school, like you said. I mean, I feel like most people go through that. Not that UX is synonymous with human factors, but um, just thinking about it in that sense. And so my mentors were typically students in my class, colleagues of mine that just were really good at what they did, um, and they were able to sort of share that information. But I know that there, it's pretty popular in Toronto to have these uh, UX design boot camps. Uh, they're typically day long on the weekends. And I think you can find them almost every single weekend in Toronto. Um, in the King Street area, King and, King and Bathurst or King and Spadina, it's the downtown core. Um, there's a lot of co-working spaces and a lot of just forward thinking um, companies out there. So nice. yeah, if you check out uh, BlogTO, that's like the... Toronto blog of events and things going on. And so I, I would say on almost every weekend, you can find some sort of boot camp there. And, you know, it'd be great to learn it in a boot camp setting, but perhaps there when you're socializing and networking with a bunch of people in the UX field, that, that would be a good opportunity to meet people that you could, you know, learn from and get a mentorship uh, relationship out of. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of my line of suggesting that I've done on the show a few times because I'm a big advocate of either finding local design communities, whether that's like looking for like an, I think it's AIGA or like a local interaction design chapter or an HFES that exists, you know, maybe in some part of Toronto, looking for any of those. And if they put on, you know, either meetups or they have, you know, coffee nights or whatever, and just going to those and meeting people, that's your best way to find a mentor of any kind. Um, Also too, one thing to consider is like, if that stuff doesn't exist in your local area, although it sounds like from your perspective that it does, I mean, you can always kind of start putting those types of events together in your local area and you might attract the people that you're looking for, Hmm. or you may inadvertently become the mentor that you're looking for, for somebody else. And that's just as important, like as receiving mentorship as being able to, you know, think outside of yourself and like give back to the community, especially when we're talking about UX or human factors or product design, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, 
you know, it's, it's an ambitious endeavor obviously to start with something like that, but sure. you know, I'm sure that this user would find that extremely rewarding. And like you said, become a mentor and find, find a mentor as well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there should be loads of opportunities in a city like Toronto. Um, <clears throat> Toronto does hold about one sixth of the population of Canada. So uh, really, yeah, it's oh, about, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, the, the greater Toronto area, um, Toronto proper is like two and a half million, but the greater Toronto area is about six and it's about 34, 35 million in, uh, in Canada. So, um, Toronto is, is, is for, in Canada, Toronto is packed with, you know, fintech, uh, healthcare human factors. We've got sort of, um, some UX companies there and some product design companies. So, uh, it's pretty. It's a pretty good place to to do some UX work there. Yeah, well, yeah. it sounds like Neurotic Buddha is definitely in the right place to be to be finding a mentor in that realm. All right, so Speed, let's wrap this up. So that's it for today, everyone. Let let us know what you think about the stories this week. If you're a Patreon support, supporter, there may not be an after show this week, but definitely stay tuned for more content that's coming out of HMBS next week for everybody that's listening. Uh, if you ever have a question or you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at show at humanfactors.com, uh, humanfactorscast.com. Imagine you had that domain name. <laughs> Hilarious. We would be the best. Yeah. So if you if you like what you hear and want to support the show, you can leave us a review on, podcast, on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. So I want to thank Spee... Spivax. Spee Spivax. Tongue twister, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For being on the show today. So where can listeners find you if they want to get to know you a little bit better? Um, academically and professionally, I think the best place would be LinkedIn. Um, and just LinkedIn and search Spee Spivax. And I, I think can users find that link through? Absolutely. So uh, we'll have a link to your LinkedIn nice. in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, I'm on Facebook too, but that's becoming more obsolete, or I'm using it less so, rather. And uh, I've got a SoundCloud, but you're you're not going to find too much on there. Oh, man. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So thanks, everybody, for sticking around. I've been Blake Arnstorff, your host for today. You can find me across social media, Don't Panic UX. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this show. Until next time, it depends. Nice. That's great. It depends. I love that sign-off. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>